Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB and social broadcasts, this is Transmitter, bringing you original sounds, new voices and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio and I'll be scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. In the next hour, we'll learn why ancient Chinese artefacts are disappearing from cultural institutions and museums around the world. How one woman believes that trepanning is the answer to spiritual enlightenment and long life. And how a Merseyside shopping centre reveals more than pound shop bargains. The year 2016 saw a global changing of the guard when it comes to financial superiority. It was the first time on record that the People's Republic of China had more billionaires in the world than America. But this isn't a story about China's rapid accumulation of wealth and how it came to be. Rather, this is a story about a particular and unexpected consequence of that newfound wealth. Art and crime. In 2000, Chinese art was only 1% of the global art auction market. However, by 2014, it had risen to occupy over 27%. The continued boom in both price and demand has been staggering. In that same year of 2014, a Chinese billionaire paid $36 million at auction for a small porcelain chicken cup, only expected to fetch around $650,000. I mean, I think it's not a question of reasonable, not reasonable. This is a unique opportunity. It's an icon of Chinese art. Uh, it is worth what anyone is ready to pay for it. I think that definitely it's, a, it's an extremely good sign for the present climate. This is not an isolated case of the exorbitant amounts being paid for Chinese art. In truth, this is now a near regular occurrence. This market has also had sinister side effects. Since 2010, there's been a spate of robberies throughout Europe at some of the world's most prestigious museums, galleries, and stately homes. Some examples of the grandiose locations that these heists have taken place, Sweden's Stockholm Palace and Norway's Kode Museum were both successfully robbed in 2010. In England, the Oriental Museum at Durham University and Fitzwilliam Museum at Cambridge University were both looted in the same month of April 2012. And in 2015, the Chateau de Fontainebleau, the sprawling former royal estate just outside Paris, housing a Chinese museum created by the last Empress of France, was also stolen from. 
All of these thefts have two stark things in common. One, these were daring professional heists, successfully circumnavigating some of the most sophisticated defense systems in existence. And two, solely Chinese art was taken, which was stolen to order and originally heralded from the Chinese Summer Palace, the subject of a mass looting from French and English armies in 1860. The accusations as to who exactly is responsible have been leveled at opportunistic criminal gangs, shadowy rogue billionaires, and even the Chinese government itself. I'm Jake Warren, host of Undiscovered, the podcast that brings you the stories you didn't know you cared about. Stories that never quite seem to make it to the headlines. There are crimes happening so often and in such a great quantity, so it's indeed very serious and a global problem. Stories that sometimes remain a mystery without a neat or tidy ending. There is absolute certainty that Chinese artefacts are under threat, but whether again it's the Chinese government, I think, is, is very difficult to say. Stories that piece together the puzzle in order to paint a better picture. We take for granted that all art pieces from the Summer Palace that appear in Britain are looted in the Evasion War. Are you intrigued? I certainly was, and I never thought I'd be particularly interested in Chinese art. But this story, worthy of a Bond plot, had me hooked. This is an extract from the podcast Undiscovered, a series that goes beyond the headlines, taking a deeper dive into stories that have been overlooked by mainstream news. This episode, The Art of the Heist, investigates why there has been a surge of meticulously planned robberies of Chinese art around the world. In the first section, we learn how common intricate thefts of artefacts and artworks from museums is, and how their sale can often be linked to funding groups such as ISIS. But here we jump in to learn about why there is such a big market for Chinese art, and why there are accusations that the Chinese government are somehow involved. What perhaps leads to accusations that the Chinese government is behind these heists is an organisation called the Poly Group. Now, with China being a communist country, all big organisations and groups are organs of the state. With the Poly Group in particular, their mission is to travel the world, seek out and find Chinese artefacts and bring them home where they belong, to China. They dispatch treasure hunting teams, Chinese art experts, to scour European museums and auction houses for art that they feel is rightfully theirs. Some who work at these foreign art institutions have even whispered accusations that polygroup treasure hunters had arrived shortly before a robbery took place, as if they were drawing up a wish list. That would be an interesting correlation to try to map out. And if you could see enough of a trend, I, I would imagine that um, a state-run organization would be more subtle than that. Um, but you never know. You'd have, to, you'd have to look at the on black and white and chart it out. It does seem bonkers that the Chinese government would be actively copying the Nazi playbook 
from Indiana Jones's Raiders of the Lost Ark. But their desires aren't hidden. You know, I've got a couple of quotes here from the CEO of Polyculture, that state organ I mentioned a few minutes ago. And, you know, the, the CEO, a man called Jiang Yingchun, is saying things, you know, on record, we can try many ways to get the head back. The auction is just one method. And, and I guess almost putting a justification for that, saying, you know, if you kidnapped my children and you treated them well, the crime is still not forgotten or forgiven. And that's quite interesting. Yeah, there, there are lots of ways to try to get art back. I think, you know, plan X might be to try to try to get someone to steal it for you. But it shows that the government feels a sense of righteousness in recovering works of art any way they can. I mean, it, it seems to be mad. And, and I guess on the other side of this, what there is a lot of examples of is Chinese billionaires at auction spending millions and millions and millions of pounds buying Chinese artifacts and then gifting it back to the state. You know, some examples here that I have is uh, a man called Liao Yiquan paying 36 million pounds for a small porcelain chicken cup. And then a few months later, paying another 45 million pounds for a Tibetan silk tapestry. And he was saying, you know, when we're young, we're indoctrinated to believe that these foreigners stole from us, you know, and that, that we should always repatriate it one day, even if we have to snatch it back. I mean, that's kind of symbolism in itself, right? That do whatever it takes to return this stuff to the homeland. Yes, that's certainly the case that the overt demonstration of patriotism in terms of buying something for the homeland, not just as a gift that seems like a frivolity, but because in doing so you're somehow righting a wrong. That's a very powerful potion. And if you have sufficient funds um, and you feel like you have the encouragement to do so, and we can only imagine what sort of reception this gentleman who bought these works of art on behalf of China got when he got back home, but I'm sure he considers it wholly worthwhile. It's a sense of national philanthropy that we tend not to have in the West. We tend to have philanthropy for specific institutions or causes or in support of a single individual. I, I can hardly imagine a private British citizen buying a, a Gainsborough painting that was for sale in Italy and then gifting it to the state. Is that because it's more politically entrenched as well? I think it's also this idea that, you know, is a remnant of communism that seems to be prevalent in the Chinese state, that um, the state is all and individual citizens, the best thing that they can do is in somehow honor the state. Not only is there a culture that arguably supports what they would determine as art repatriation rather than theft, but it is also important to note that crimes in the top end of the art world seldom get solved. We are very bad at recovering stolen art. According to some studies, as little as 1.5% of art reported stolen is recovered and criminals successfully prosecuted. So the takeaway from this, if you're listening and you're a criminal or planning on being a criminal, is get into the art heist world because that's where you're most likely to be successful. But only if you're happy sticking it on your wall and not showing anybody because you're not going to get any money for it very easily. Francis Wood is one of the world's leading authorities on the subject of Chinese art 
history and culture. I studied Chinese a long time ago in Cambridge, taking um, particularly subjects which um, involve Chinese art, history and Chinese archaeology. And I've worked for most of my life in the British Library where I looked after Chinese collections, which included very precious collections of manuscripts and documents, including the world's earliest dated printed book, which came from China in 868 AD. Chinese and Western art are polar opposites, not only in their style, but also in their varying cultures of appreciation. It is very different. I mean, in Chinese painting has almost invariably been done in just with a plain sort of black and white wash, a rare use of colour on paper or silk, and paintings were designed to be hung up just occasionally, just for a, an evening when friends came round and then taken down again. For the Chinese, art is something to be collected, treasured, looked at occasionally and then put away again. To understand why China so desperately wants its art back, you have to look to the history books. In China, there's something that they refer to as the century of humiliation. What did that entail? Um, it's not an inaccurate description. Um, it begins with the two opium wars in the middle of the 19th century. And it's a time when China is really in decay. I mean, the central government, the Qing government, the Manchu government is absolutely at its end, tottering to, to its doom, which is hastened by European incursion. You know. So... The 19th and early 20th century were just a kind of long clash between China trying to keep itself to itself and the West pushing in. Um, and indeed, in the end, you know, by the early 20th century, effectively carving China up into what they call spheres of influence. And so, you know, the, the Yangtze Delta was British, basically. The south of China was French. Um, and then you have the Germans up in Shandong and so on. So China saw itself for a good hundred years as being really attacked, abused and denigrated by the West. And it wasn't until 1949 when Chairman Mao says China has stood up, you know, that um, they felt that they kind of regained their own, the possession of their own country and culture. Largely, Chinese perspective today tends to be one of outrage. They were victims of colonialism and seeing some of their finest art in the hands of those who did the colonizing, they perhaps feel those pieces actually rightfully belong to China. But is this a case of glossing over their own history? I think there's an element um, which is really a lot to do with things like the, the Cultural Revolution period in particular, 1966 to 76, that I mean, during that time, possession of anything old was considered practically a crime against the state. And they used to say, attack the four olds. And that would include possessions. So now there's an enormous lack in, in China in many ways of things that were smashed to bits and got rid of during that sort of particular period. And now they have to look abroad for replacements, if you like. The iterative moment in history that stands out in particular for China as a national outrage was the sacking of their summer palace. Such is the strength of feeling that over 150 years later, after the event occurred, the grounds of the palace have still not been touched or tidied to serve as a constant reminder. Yes, the Summer Palace was sacked in 1860 by British and French troops. It was a place that 
nobody much liked anymore, even the imperial family. They had much preferred other palaces further away. So it's a bit like, you know, more like sacking Sandringham when you've only got kind of two old housekeepers in charge. Sandringham, for those who may not be up to speed on British stately homes, is one of the estates and royal residences of the Queen. Um, it wasn't full of amazing stuff and it wasn't of any great importance and it remained of no great importance until it was decided that it was politically important as a demonstration, yes, of the evil of the West and the sacking and so on. And the whole thing has been greatly exaggerated. You were to lay end to end all the artefacts, all the pots and um, ewers and jars and so on that claimed to have been sacked from the Summer Palace. Mm. You know, it would go 18 times around the world. Um, it became the fashion in Europe in the late 19th and early 20th century to say of any Chinese pot, oh, came from the Summer Palace, which is absolute rubbish. Well, there's one story from it, which I think is quite remarkable, is that supposedly they stole a Pekingese dog, called it Looty, and gave it to Queen Victoria. Yes. That, that does kind of feel that you're uh, rubbing it in a little bit. Um, yeah, but probably Lutie did better off than being left in the, in, in the Summer Palace after the sacking. The Summer Palace and the preservation of its sacking serves as a constant reminder to the Chinese people of the perceived humiliation they endured. It is the reference point for inspiration and legitimization for the polygroup in their global quest to repatriate their art. I think that... It's not just the polygroup. I mean, the polygroup is, as it were, the sort of the tip of the iceberg. The polygroup and the polygroup is the one that will say quite openly that they're trying to sort of restore their patrimony. Um, but it is true that, you know, all over China, you've got very rich people. I mean, China is now a country of many millionaires and billionaires. You know, they, there are more of them there now than there are anywhere else in the world. And they are very keen on collecting and assuming the sort of airs of a Confucian gentleman who likes to have nice things around him. So does Francis feel that the Chinese state is capable of these heart heists? I think that's fairly sort of fanciful embroidery on the possibilities. I mean, we don't know who's... We often know who carried out the heists. Mm. And these tend to be middlemen, efficient um, gangs of people who are quite good at burgling English stately homes and English museums, etc. And no doubt there are similar people all across Europe. And I think that it's fueled by this enormous increase in the prices for Chinese art, whether they're actually working directly for, you know, sinister Chinese billionaires or the Chinese government. I mean, we simply don't know. What I think makes perhaps the imagination run wild is it's not just criminality, I guess, in the sense of we're going to rob a museum and we're going to put everything in a bag where we think we can, you know you know, flog on the black market and make some money from. It's very specific items which are stolen. And so, you know, there may be two things next to each other, one being a Chinese artefact and one being, I don't know, something from Japan. And they'll steal the Chinese one and leave the Japanese one almost as if a calling card to say, actually, what we're doing here isn't criminality. There's no question. These things are stolen to order. But whether, again, it's the Chinese government, I think, is, is very difficult to say. As was mentioned earlier, the Chinese state organization in charge of hunting down and repatriating art from around the world is the Polygroup. They have declared assets of over $95 billion 
which perhaps highlights the seriousness in which it is taken. The group typically operates quietly, intending not to draw attention. However, we managed to track down one of their lead art experts and treasure hunters, a man called Lu Yang. Now I'm working for the Yuan Mingyuan Foundation. Yuan Mingyuan is Chinese for the old summer palace. I'm responsible for fundraising to preserve the Yuan Mingyuan relics, but I've just joined the department for a short time, and they need someone to introduce the history and culture of Yuan Mingyuan. Lu Yang is no newcomer for the hunt for artifacts taken from the summer palace. I've become interested in it since I was 16 or 17. I started my treasure hunt early in Beijing, and eventually made it global. He has traveled the world over in his pursuit. Yes, globally, in museums and private institutions across the world, to track down pieces originally from Yuan Mingyuan. Lu Yang has been compiling lists of the Summer Palace looted art that he seeks to reclaim. He recently traveled to London to view pieces in the Wallace Collection, a privately owned exhibition open to the public. The Wallace Collection owned two ornate Chinese cups, which were used by the emperor in the 18th century. They were taken away by a French general named Dupont. Lu Yang has already identified what he feels are stolen items, and such is the extent of his knowledge, he can prove it by matching this pair with another already in Chinese possession. There are four in total, one in Beijing's Palace Museum, one in Taipei's Palace Museum, and another two in Wallace Collection, which are presumably taken from Yuan Mingyuan. He can trace the artwork and its looting back through a French army commander present at the Summer Palace Second. Because there was a French general named Dupont, who was the highest commander of the French invading army, and he sold the two cups when he was back to France, and there was a historical record of it, and then the British actually bought the two cups. Lu Yang's list of stolen artwork is growing too. He identified others whilst in the UK. The British Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum, also have several pieces. He says coming face to face with these special pieces from China's history is a powerful experience. As a researcher, I felt differently from any other Chinese. It was like meeting an old friend. In fact, I was not super excited when I saw them, for I often saw lots of art pieces in foreign countries, but I don't like the presentation of the two cups by the Wallace Collection. It doesn't indicate its origin from the Summer Palace. It was displayed without adequate illustrations. I'm sure that nobody but me knows that it's from the Summer Palace. By not representing where the art originates from, the Wallace Collection and others are perhaps contriving to hide the past of the pieces and how they came into their possession. Some think that it's commonplace that the art pieces are gotten from the war, and some think that they now belong to Britain. Liu Yang argues that Chinese art from the Summer Palace should be treated differently. Because what happens in Summer Palace is a milestone in history. There are many oriental pieces in Europe, some are also imperial. 
But the art pieces from Summer Palace are special. We take for granted that all art pieces from the Summer Palace appear in Britain are looted in the invasion war. They might be looted by troops, but it's not confirmed whether the museums got them in a legal way or not. Most foreigners intentionally evade mentioning the Summer Palace, but I think that's the core of all these problems. That was an extract from The Art of the Heist, Episode 5 of Undiscovered, an investigative podcast series on underreported news stories. It was produced by London-based company Message Heard, an indie who have taken the plunge into great investigative documentary-style reporting, narrated by Jake Warren and produced by Sandra Ferrari. If you enjoyed this, you should also dip into their other podcasts, Benched, The Human Stories Behind Sport, and Conflicted, a fascinating insight into the conflicts in the Middle East through the eyes of an MI6 agent and an Al-Qaeda bomb maker. Find out more on message-herd.com. Now let's move away from lost artefacts and move towards finding ourselves, or more specifically, a trip into the unconscious mind with Amanda Fielding, a British baroness working with the Beckley Foundation on the medical benefits of recreational drugs and trepanation. It's just a very, very strange opening up, widening, lifting, changing the viewpoint, much more flexible. At the end of the wood, immediately after a skid-warning road sign, there's a hidden turning to the left onto a track. My God. <laughs> As you approach Amanda Fielding's tumbling country pile in Oxfordshire, it's perhaps unsurprising that she has dedicated her life to consciousness-expanding exploration. Yeah, if you just carry on to where those cars are, I think this is it. Wow. A magical enclave of secret gardens, enchanted forests and even islands, it's a place where the imagination can run wild. Amanda's imagination has led her to the front line of psychedelic scientific research. At 75 years old, she is flying the flag for the medical benefits of recreational drugs like cannabis and LSD with her pioneering investigations at the Beckley Foundation. Lovely to, Lovely to see you. Oh, thank you Good. so much for having us here. Not at all. It was, it's wonderful. Oh, it is pretty. I can't believe, I can't remember the last time I saw a moat. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is great. Yeah, it's very good. But uh, they're all very dried up. You'll see, they're going down a foot. And, yeah. and there are three moats. There's three? <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. I want the grand tour, Amanda. Yeah. I want yeah, to see yeah, it all. Yeah. This is so exciting. Good. Her life has always, you could say, been fairly far out. Amanda is a countess whose lineage traces back to Charles II of England. In the 1960s, after travelling around Sri Lanka on her own, 
she discovered acid and hung out with the beat poets of the era, never without her beloved pet pigeon Birdie by her side. She met the Dutch scientist Bart Hugers, who introduced her to the ancient and rather terrifying sounding practice of trepanation, a shamanic ritual that is essentially drilling a hole in one's head, and which she eventually did on herself in 1970. Needless to say, a conversation with Amanda Fielding, with the wind blowing through the trees, is quite a trip. He was my total obsession, buddy. Fate gave him to me. His mother died, and I found him this little fledgling who I then, he had no feathers at all, and I brought him up on a paintbrush, and then he got fixated. And then he was with me, he never went in a cage for 15 years or something, and he went wherever I went, and he adored me more than anything else in the world, and I adored him. I would have gone and probably lived in Holland and married someone I didn't marry because of, you know, all sorts of things would have happened if I didn't have Birdie. I mean, a bird who has um, become a lover of a person is in quite a dangerous state, in a sense. Yeah, he was consciousness. He was the expand, expression of ex freedom. He, he, he was absolutely incredible, Birdie. He was a kind of honour to know. Journalist and presenter Kate Hutchinson sits with Amanda Fielding in her garden and talks more about her experiences of mind expansion. I remember, as almost everyone in the 60s who smoked cannabis for the first time, I was listening to Ray Charles and just the kind of wonder of his voice on, on cannabis. It suddenly I heard it in a whole new range of subtleties and um, depths. 1965, I think, I was first introduced to LSD. So then suddenly when I took LSD, I realised that this is the area, this is the field of the experience that is the mystical experience. It's, it's a losing of the ego, it's a floating up and out, and um, it's a wonderful experience. So, you know, stop reading and start experiencing. Clearly, LSD made a profound impact, but when did it go from being a sort of uh, a pursuit, you know, something fun to do with friends in the park, to yes. becoming something that you thought, no, this is going to be my life's work? No, absolutely, that's a very good question. Because when I took it this first period, I thought, well, this is amazing. But actually, it's a kind of trip to the fun fair, in the sense, that you could have a wonderful experience, like going on the deep wheel, or whatever you call it, at a fun fair. But it wasn't a way of life, I felt. Um, it's quite chaotic. It makes the brain looser, but to the point of chaos. Anyway, and then a friend came and said, I must go to this party in London, which was an kind of epitome, actually, of swinging London. Ravi Shankar was playing, um, and it was this very beautiful house over the embankment. And that's, I met this 
person, it was his first night in London, he called um, Bart Hugess, the Dutch scientist. Then, to cut a long story short, Bart and I got together. I mean, he was a scientist. He'd been the kind of prize student in, in medicine at Amsterdam University and very against drugs, cannabis. And then, anyway, finally he smoked and he realised, well, this is interesting. And so actually he called his daughter, he had a marijuana, which is Maria Wana. He called his daughter Maria Wana. <laughs> and that, incredible. And that didn't go down very well. These are new ones. They, their parents were here. They were here for about 10 years. They're wild swans. And he, the father, came and actually he fell in love with me. I was very flattered. <laughs> and he used to put his wings around him, you know, like crowd thing. And then at some female landed on the thing and he was horrible to her and I tried to encourage her to, him to be nice and then they got paired and when he started when she had eggs then he changed and um, became a swan. Can you come and sort out my love life please Amanda? <laughs> I'd like to ask you a bit more specifics about the uh, trepanation, if that's okay. Just what what led you to becoming convinced that that was something that you needed to do? I never really thought I needed to do it, actually. You know, millions of people live perfectly well without doing it. So it wasn't a question of needing to do it. It was a question of being interested to see if it actually brings about the effect that Bart had said it did. Could. He asked, there was a friend of his standing on his head at a party and, and Barb asked him why he was and he said, ah, because I've run out of cannabis and um, I stand on the, my head to get more blood in my brain. And then Barb said, oh, that's interesting, yeah. And so he started to develop a hypothesis about changing blood supply in the capillaries, volumes, basically. And what was this hypothesis, just to put it simply? Uh, to put it most simply, in the brain, there are two fluid volumes, blood and cerebrospinal fluid, which is basically water. And it kind of drains the toxins and helps the circulation to drain away the toxins in the brain and fills in the gaps. But the hypothesis is that the upright position has many, many advantages. See further, run more, all the advantages, loosen the hands, all the things you get from standing upright. But Gravity is against you. Gravity means that there's a changing ratio between blood and cerebral spinal fluid. And so when the skull closes in the upright position, the arteries can't expand quite so far as they do in childhood. So they still expand, but it's a, it's a restricted expansion. And that loss of pulse pressure means that you've got less force which changes the ratio between blood and cerebral spinal fluid. So when you're a child, you have a little bit more energy, a little bit more heartbeat force pushing the circulation around blood and cerebral spinal fluid. That's the hypothesis. And when your skull seals, you first the fontanelle, and then the sutras come together, and then you become adult, and then there's a slight sinking 
because I'm against self-trepanation. It was my aim to find a doctor. I spent four years looking for a doctor. I met quite a few very nice doctors who were very interested and said they would do it for me. And then at the last moment, you know, quite understandably, they decided, well, God had meant us to have a hole in our head. He would have provided us with one, which actually he did do, close as ever. But, or um, a more realistic one, you know, something went wrong, one would get, you know, lose one's doctors. It's not illegal, but it hasn't got an indication. It's not an accepted procedure. I'm a very, very cautious person and I see every danger magnified. So that's as a starting point. So I realized that if I was going to do it, when I finally decided after four years, I found no doctor. Uh, um, Joe, my partner, um, said he'd do it, but he'd done it so clumsily himself. I said, no, thanks very much. <laughs> I'll do it myself. So then I decided, well, then I have to learn how to do it. And I took that very seriously. And there was a shop actually near Harley Street. And they would sweep and used to give me a kind of, oh, this is this trepan and this stops automatically when you get through. And, and you know, and then I'd say, oh, what a cheaper version. And they'd show me the cheaper versions. <laughs> and they were very nice. And anyway, so I learned that. And then I practiced, I practiced drilling. I practiced all the possible things which can go wrong. And then I decided, well, as I'm an artist, I'll make a film of it because uh, it will be good material. Um, what was the reaction to the film? It, it, it was a very beautiful little film, actually, and I showed it in New York to, and, and across America, and people used to drop from their seats and faint. <laughs> like some article said, like, ripe plums, they dropped to the floor. And they were usually the ones who fainted were the ones who were most enthusiastic about it. Was this something that you thought at the time, or you think now, could be given on the NHS? Absolutely. I mean, that's what I wanted to research, and what I still want to research. And actually, only this morning I was talking to our neuroscientist about um, doing some research on it. And I think it's very interesting, because if it does improve cerebral circulation, it's a very interesting process because so many of the modern illnesses are based on de degenerative conditions, which you know, are often caused or affect the cerebral circulation. I mean, Alzheimer's, dementia, or plaque, you know, slurring down of the circulation, getting blocked with, etc., etc. Parkinson, they're, they're all there around that area. So if, um, trepanation can slightly lift the cerebral circulation, maybe that's a measure for health, apart from the slight change in consciousness, possibly it gives, which I, I think it does. I think it gives you a level of consciousness more like what you were, say, pre-13. So would the world be a better place if we were all doing a little bit of LSD? I'd never say all. I think it's a minority sport. I, uh, you know, whoever, whatever that minority is, 25% at the most, maybe. Mm. And But I think a society is richer, better, 
benefits if it permits and respects that aspect of its population because I think they can bring back very useful treasures from the desert or from the jungle or wherever they've been. They can bring back, I mean, like, if you like, uh, uh, what's his name, Steve Jobs said he'd have never done what he did if he hadn't taken LSD. Um, that one, Carrie Mullis, who discovered DNA, da, 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 said he, you know, there are lots of people you meet who've done very interesting things. Did Steve Jobs tell you that? No. Um, um, Carrie Mullis did. I gave a dinner for him once at the Royal Society. And yeah, I remember him in the 70s, standing on a table, said, I'd never do this without, on the front page of the Times. I thought, gosh, there's a brave man. I like the look of him. As you know, we've been through the whole war of drugs, which was a total disaster. Quite obviously, sir, from the first moment, one could see this is madness. It won't work. It will cause lots of suffering. Um, a lot of taxpayers' money. It will harm many people. You know. And is that why you started the Beckley Foundation? I started, really, I started the Beckley Foundation because I realised that this is incredibly important. It's a new potential phase for mankind when you have tools with which you can manipulate your level of consciousness. And furthermore, you can learn to work with it. In the 60s, the general kind of theme was to rather take you where the wind blew you. You know, you had a mystical experience, you can learn, you know. Whereas actually, our kind of attitude was how do you use your expanded brain power, energy, to concentrate, to work, to try to make the world a better place, to understand better what is the human condition, why are we like the way we are, how can one change it, how can one adapt it, how can one get this out of there, against the taboo, you know, those things. But I've always been a compulsive worker, and you know, so when I was little I studied the mystics and the consciousness and blah, 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 there I was, you know, working away. I like working, it's fun. So that's what I wanted to do when I started getting high. And it was so exciting, it was the most exciting period of my life when I suddenly got a much better understanding of how the ego controls who we are and how it's like a, a veil through which one um, sees reality, as so many great, you know, like Plato and Audacity, all these people have said it. But suddenly, with the knowledge which we were exploring, it was giving it a me mechanistic, physiological base. And that was very exciting. One felt one was really moving forward in the knowledge game. How could one evolve a better system of um, regulating um, the use of psychoactives? Because in my opinion, people want to change their consciousness. They're always going to want to change their consciousness. They have the right to change their consciousness so long as they aren't harming other people. Are psychoactive substances still taboo? And if so, why do you think yeah. that is? Um, I think for many reasons. I think one which is a very realistic reason is people are frightened of it. And 
you know, there's a certain amount of reason um, why they're frightened of it. Because we don't have a culture like uh, traditional cultures where they have it in ceremonial form, at the new moon or whatever it is, and people all behave in a certain norm. We've lost that. And so our culture hasn't really got a way of controlling it. And then they don't like the loosening of the edges, which, I mean, like alcohol looses the edges, but somehow we've absorbed and worked out how to... We have to accept somewhere people altering their consciousness. So we've decided to accept um, alcohol, nicotine and coffee and, and alcohol kills whatever it is, three, four million a year, nicotine kills six, I think, million a year worldwide. You know, big killers. But they, they've got absorbed into the, the system. And these more esoteric substances, I mean, I'm really thinking about the psychedelic substances, the other ones. Um, I, I think the whole prohibition approach was wrong. And I think we should have had a, a health approach, you know, looking after people's health, not making it a criminal issue, but making it a, a health issue, which it was before the 60s. Um, and countries which have gone back to that, like Portugal, have a much better, um, you know, they, they have many less drug deaths, many less unwanted pregnancies, depressions. They're, they're a healthier country than countries like England with a high um, prohibitory approach. Did you ever get tired of being a bit of a sort of lone wolf? Yeah, yeah. But I, as I say, I grew up here as a lone voice as a child, you know. And, that, and you know, in a way, I was less of a lone voice because I had one or two companions with whom I did it. And um, that, two's a crowd, you know. You're not alone. I always had a partner. So I was never alone. And they, all, they were always uh, trepanned. Trepanned, yeah. A prerequisite. <laughs> More or less. But <laughs> <laughs> um, Has there ever been a point in your life, in your career, in your work, where you've just thought, you know what, I've got my house with the moat. I'm just going to yeah. give this up. Absolutely. I, yeah, it does. I have quite often thought that. I thought, what, what am I doing? I work 15 hours a day. I get no thanks. Um, you know, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? I'm now 75. What am I doing? Why? Why, why do I go on? Why don't I enjoy my nice garden? And, and then I realize, well, it's the best thing in. You know, one wants to, one wants to be creative, be useful, hopefully leave the world a little bit better place than, you know, without one's work, hopefully. You just heard Episode 4, Amanda Fielding, from the self-funded and independently produced podcast, The Last Bohemians, a series profiling fearless women and maverick outsiders in arts and culture. This episode, Amanda, was produced by Lucy Dearlove and the series executive producer and presenter is Kate Hutchinson. You can hear more stories of inspirational women on the fringes, such as original rude girl Pauline Black, or erotic poet and former fashion editor Molly Parkin on The Last Bohemians. Just look for it wherever you find your podcasts.
And now, let me take you to Liscard, a small town in Wallasey on the Wirral Peninsula. And more specifically, let's go to the Cherry Tree Shopping Centre, the hub and beating heart of the town. We stop for lunch at Jeannie's Cafe. How do you two know each other? We're neighbours, we're cool best friends. So you came here together? Yes. I do the driving. She just drives me up the wall. <laughs> we're in Jeannie's cafe. Me and my friends are having our lunch. I'm talking to you. <laughs> How long have you been neighbours? About ten years. Yeah. I kept myself to myself at first when I moved in. Our first encounter was on the field around the corner from us and niece was on the field with her dog. I was on the field with mine but I had a Rottweiler at the time and he was daft as a brush but over friendly and he made a beeline for her and I was trying to shout across the field, He's o it's okay, he's friendly. I was doing the same with my dog because my dog's a big golden retriever, golden lab, he's massive. And I was doing the same, wasn't I, Shelton? He only wants to play. <laughs> so thankfully she was all right with Rotties and yeah. she stopped talking. How would you describe Maxine? <laughs> oh. <laughs> she is a lovely person. She's got a heart of gold. Sometimes her opinions are a bit strange. And she comes out with some crackers. But it's very entertaining, actually, and it makes you think she's a good friend, very good friend. What I think of Nisi, a very special person. She came along in a time in my life when I was really down, and she picked me up and gave me a good shake. And I don't think I'd be here if it wasn't for her. She's really helped me and turned my life around. She does that for a lot of people. She's quite special. She's pain in the bum sometimes, like, but... <laughs> she gets a bit fussy, but um, it's done with love. Yeah, a lot of love. I mean, I do say to you, I don't mean to be as harsh, but I'm going to do it and say it as it is, because it only comes round and kicks you back on the bum twice as much. Yeah. So... You just get it at me, you get it, what you see is what you get, you get it out there. It's always better to be honest with people. Yeah, especially if I upset her and I don't know where she's coming from. And then I get it to explain, don't I? Yeah. And then I don't realise then, so I will apologise. I had a phobia of going out and talking to people and being in the world really, because my depression was that bad. And nieces sort of taught me that not everyone's looking at me. They're not really interested in what I'm thinking or doing. That They've got their own problems and it's okay to be in a room full of people because we're all human and everybody's got worries and hurts and okay, some people are really snotty but maybe they're snotty for a reason. It doesn't mean you have to talk to them. It just give me a little bit more confidence in myself. Do you have to pull her out sometimes? No, you can't do that to a person. Yeah. You've got to... 
I don't know, mentally go down to their level and then start bringing them up with you. I'm just giving her, she can't do it. People can do it, but they're scared. Like you said, what did I say to you when you were in tears and you were scared? And, and I said to you, see my arms. Remember that day? Yeah. And I said, these arms will keep you safe. Not going to hurt you, because I won't let it. And wrap my arms round you, didn't I, and yeah. give you a hug. She just went like jelly. Just to keep you safe. I'm scared to get close to people. I've let me guard down with, with Nisi, yeah. We're having the same. I don't like people getting close to me. I'm weak in a different part of how you're weak, I think. Yeah. Everyone's got a different weakness, different levels. And I sort of bounce back, but it does hurt. If I'm helping someone, it's taking my mind off my own. This time last year, she would have... She would have chased you off with that. <laughs> That was part of a series of nine radio vignettes produced for performance artists Hunt and Darton's Radio Local, a touring live radio experience that, to quote, is so local you can smell it. The Cherry Tree Chronicles travel through one day at the shopping centre, taking an audio snapshot of the lives of the local people met along the way, proving that if you listen carefully enough, stories will begin to reveal themselves. This is Jeannie. My mum originally opened the cafe when P&O owned the centre 81 years ago. Originally it was called Hannah's after my grandmother and then P&O bought the centre. They were doing the market hall up so we were moved to another shop and then they asked us to come back and when we came back we came back as Jeannie's because my mum's name was Jean and I'm Jeannie. My mum was a bookkeeper by trade and she owned a place in Liverpool and she said to me I'm going to open a cafe and I was then 26. I went, sorry, well, she said, I'm going to open a cafe. I said, Mum, you can't cook. She was egg and chips. And she went, I know, but I, I owe somebody that can cook. And I went, what's brought this on? Because then she was like, well, in her, in her 40s. My stepdad at the time, he did suspended ceilings and his knees were given in. She said, I want something for me and pizza, she said, to do, you know. So she opened this cafe in Liverpool made a success of that over 12 months and then she'd heard by how I don't know that P&O was buying Cherry Tree Centre so she sold Liverpool and she said to me I'm going to open a, a little stall in the market hall I'm doing what? She's just going to do sandwiches and a cup of tea that's what she did she opened one stall and then as the one next door came open she took that one and as the next one she took that one so eventually we got full seats of Kathy and my stepfather at the time, Peter, you know, he said, I'll knock up a steak pie, I love. And his pastry was to die for. And next thing he's on steak pies and he's on the apple pies and we're on the cottage pie. I said to my mum, what happened to a cake and a cup of tea? Oh, well, you know what it's like. And it just becomes a full-time 24-7 job. Bye, Bill. See you later. Bye, Jeannie. 
So do you think you were destined to run this cafe? No, I only came to do dishes. My mum just said to me, can you just come and do a few dishes? Apart from having a second child and being off with that, I've been here. I must admit, a couple of years ago, I was getting to a point where I thinking, I think I don't want to do it with this anymore. And then I had an accident and I was off work for nine months and I sat at home thinking, no way could I do this. So I reckon my mother gave me a push and let me have a little taste of what it'd be like to be at home. But I'm a people person, we all are. That's why we all get on. We basically know every customer by name. If we don't know them by name, we know by what they eat or what they drink. Somebody will come in and Debbie will say to me, oh, you know, and I'll get oh, no idea who you're talking about, Debbie. She'll frothy coffee, two sugars, she has a wedge of toast. And I go, God, yeah, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Just the way we are. I get a lot of ladies coming in and they're alone because there's no door. When we moved to a shop, my mum noticed the problem was the door. So the lady on her own, everybody looks around. So when we came back to the markets, my mum wanted it all open, which is as it is. So a lady on her own, or a man, can walk up and see if there's a table free without everybody looking. We get new customers coming in, we get to know them. And then we'll sit them with somebody else and then they've made a friend. And that's the way it's been for all these years. It's like half of these pensioners that come in here, they raise me, you know. We try to change, you know, over the years, change with the time sort of thing, you know, because a lot of my customers are, are older, ladies and gentlemen. And you think, okay, let's try and introduce something different. They don't like it. They like the scouse, they like the, the roast dinner, they like cottage pie, mince, you know. So as much as you try to change, sometimes it doesn't work, you know. I think like the older people, they tend to come and have a meal here and then they'll just have a sandwich at home because for what it costs for a meal here. It's not on a side plate, it's a proper dinner on a plate. So I've got more phone numbers than I know what to do with because I get phone numbers off customers that I've known for a while. And if I don't see them for a week or I get to 10 days and I start to worry, then I'm on the phone, are you okay? And it's, I'm fine, Jeannie, I've not been too well. Or lots of customers have got my phone number, to which I'll say, right, if you're not well or you can't get up to charity and you want some shopping, phone me and I'll drop it off on my way home. I've done that a few times for a lot of people. Cause that's what you do, you know. I don't know what I'd do without it. Probably set me out my box. <laughs> the advice my mum always gave me was, your kitchen, keep your kitchen like you keep your kitchen at home, Jeannie, you can't go wrong. I often wonder if she's looking down on me, she's proud that I've kept it going for her. I'm sure she I think she might be. <laughs> That was an extract from the Cherry Tree Chronicles, produced by Social Broadcast during a week-long residency for Hunt and Darton's Radio Local in Liscard. For upcoming shows and archives, visit radiolocal.co.uk. I'm Lucia Skadzokyo and you've been listening to Transmitter, a social broadcast production. All the details of what you've heard will be available on the Transmitter tab of socialbroadcasts.co.uk, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. I'll be back with more audio, radio and podcast discoveries in the autumn. Until then, happy listening.